The baby boomers used LSD to hallucinate. Nowadays, people use generative artificial intelligence to hallucinate, to create information that seems credible but is misinformation. Now the Government Accountability Office has published a detailed study of generative AI and its implications. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Science and Technology Assessment, Brian Bothwell. Brian, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. And this is a fairly brief report, but it's kind of packed with information. Maybe just the one-sentence description for people that may be having their heads under a pillow for the past six months. Generative AI is one branch of AI, and what characterizes it? Well, generative AI is a it's a content creator. It's a system that, with prompts, maybe just like kind of minimum prompts, will answer your questions. It'll create pictures for you. It'll create video for you. It can actually aid in some complex design processes like uh, designing molecules and new drugs or or generating code for programming. And when you type in your prompt, is it going out to the internet and finding everything it thinks is relevant? Or do the different platforms have their own, I don't know, body of knowledge built in? The large language models, for example, like ChatGPT and BARD, are trained on a large, large amount of data. What exactly is in that data? I mean, that's, that's I think, um, that's depends on who's creating the model. Um, so when you type in your prompt, the model is taking that prompt and then looking at the data it's been trained on to give you a result. Right. So then it shares the same possible weakness with every kind of AI, and that is so much depends on what you use to train it. Exactly. And I'll, I'll just give you a for instance. Personally, I went to, went to the, one of the large language models, and I asked it, you know, just for kicks, to write a short bio about me. And I had to give it a, a second prompt to tell tell the model that I was with GAO because there's other people out there with my name. And it came back with a bio really quickly, but there's some things wrong in it. You talked about hallucinating at the top of the, the, the show. Um, it said I graduated from college from a place I never went to. It said I had a master's degree in a topic that I did not. So there, there are, it's going out and scraping data or been trained on this data that's out there, but it doesn't necessarily give you an accurate response. Right, so it can go from pretty close to complete nonsense, basically. Yes, or, or or a lot of times I think in between, where it gives you a lot of accurate information, but it's interspersed with things that are not true. Because one of the points in your report is how mature is it? So that's my question. How mature is it? It might be very mature in terms of the capabilities of the algorithm, but if the data is all flawed, then it doesn't matter how good the algorithm is. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, I, these things continue to advance. They keep training them on more and more data. Newer models keep coming out with um, more data, more parameters. So they're improving, but you still need to be able to check and see, okay, is the, is the output actually accurate? And that's, that's where some of the issues are. And besides false information, you list some of the other possibilities, some of the challenges of it. What are the chief ones that people need to worry about besides misinformation in the first place? Yeah, we list several of those, and I think one is is can you trust these models? What and how do you how do you perform oversight on these? For example, these are we generally call big black boxes. You put something in, you get something out. But what's going on in the model? And since these are so large, have so many parameters in them, it's really hard to to be transparent. Another thing we already talked about was the false information, the hallucinations. There are also some economic issues like. Um, what data are these models trained on? 
if you go scrape the internet for a bunch of data, you might be collecting up copyrighted data, other sensitive data. Privacy risks also can involve when you put in a prompt, what kind of information do you put in? Where does that information go? Is that stored in the model? Is that used by the model? Is that more data for the model to be trained on? Those are the kind of issues that um, that people need to think about. For that matter, it could be scraping up other documents generated by generative AI, and therefore you get increasingly less accurate the more you go. And and that's uh, yeah, that's like multi- another point it's, that it's, it's like multiplying fractions. Right. I mean, if you can, okay. it, theoretically, if you have your model trained on inaccurate data, and then you are producing more inaccurate data based on that, if you feed that into your database, yeah, I think you know what you were talking about might happen. We're speaking with Brian Bothwell. He's director of science and technology assessment at the Government Accountability Office. On the other hand, there are opportunities possibly for it. What do you think of the chief ones there that you found? Yeah, there are some fantastic opportunities. There has great potential applications across education, government, medicine, and law. These opportunities here are really great at maybe summarizing information. You can go ask the model a, a question about a topic, and it's going to give you a maybe a slightly flawed answer, but it's going to give you a lot of good information about the topic you're looking for. These models can actually enable automation and make it much easier to produce things. And take less person power to do that kind of thing. And it can improve productivity. You can, I can think of an example where it's like if you have somebody who has to do copywriting or they have to do um, advertisements for their products, you can ask one of these models to write something up and you've got something that you, uh, it's not a blank sheet of paper anymore. You've got something you can start with and refine from there to use for that kind of purpose. And it strikes me that uh, going back to the challenges, what would happen if someone tried to copyright, say, something that was created by generative AI when presumably whoever typed in the same prompt would get the same result. So how could you purport to claim that's copyrightable? Yeah, and the U.S. Copyright Office has already got some guidance on on copywriting works using generative AI. They've already said if you generate something solely from a prompt to a generative AI system, you can't have a copyright for that. And what did you find when you tried it out in this document that GAO has published the prompt was to draw orange cats in an abstract style, and you got some pretty good cartoons out of it. What does that tell us about the the process to use these things in a responsible way? Well, we didn't actually use the process to generate that graphic, but we used our you know, our knowledge and what we learned about how they work to create the graphic. But I've been working with plenty of people who have you know tried this out on the side. We're not using it as an agency. We're you know sort of look, looking at the tool and seeing you know, what steps we need to ensure proper use, but we're not using it for our work. But we've got plenty of people really interested in it, you know, and they're doing this on the side with their personal accounts. And there's some pretty interesting stuff that they've they've developed. Yeah, so the pseudo-reality of it, I guess, ultimately is what people need to worry about. That plus whatever privacy might have been violated or whatever, whatever you know, data that is maybe uh, sensitive but unclassified would end up in there. Yeah, that, that, that is one problem. I think that's what, for example, some, some agencies have, are worried about is, is you, you really can't expose non-public data to these systems because you don't know where that data is going, that information is going. And that's, that's, a, that's a concern. Brian Bothwell is Director of Science and Technology Assessment at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. I had a great time, Tom. Thanks. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report and check out those orange cats at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts.
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. 
but never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire 
Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.